0: Ladies and
2: gentlemen,
1: how you doing? It's the Dr. Joe show. Whoa, Tom! Tom, a, a totally new approach. Love it. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, I'm. am an experimenter. You are an
1: experimenter. You know, Tom. Mark's not here. Wherever you are, Mark. I know. That, I know. Mark's at a big conference, so he gets the night off. We miss you, but I've got to tell you, Mark. Tom, just, uh, just added a whole new dimension to the dr joe show intro yeah
0: what's uh, going on tom things are things are never going to be the same are they uh but things are things are great dr joe wow it's it's like coming up for air so as i think you've hinted at before i am back on stage i'll be playing young scrooge in a christmas carol at company theater in norwell this christmas season it's oh uh, man yay yeah, it's been nuts since 2016. I haven't been on. I haven't done any acting, or at least the actual acting. Uh, I think my last thing was Young Frankenstein. It's a part of me that I have not fed for a very long time. That, you know, I'm saying ad nausea, but yeah, it makes a big, big difference in just my day to day life, knowing that I'm doing what I love.
1: It's great back on stage and company theater uh, in Norwell, folks is a, is a great, great organization. We've had. Zoe Bradford on the show a couple of times uh, to talk about her role as as one of the executive directors there. Um, Tom, I hope you don't mind me saying, but I'm really proud of you. Yeah, thank you, You thank you. And it's such an important part. Mm. And he is the foundation for the Scrooge that we know and sometimes don't love.
0: Mm. Right, but it helps you understand his uh, the I am his operating in.
1: Exactly right. That's right. It's his early home and social domain. It's influenced who he is, you know, so it's, it's great. It's fantastic. Fantastic. You know, with all that is happening in theater, can you also just tell folks a little bit about why this may be a particular challenge for you?
0: Well, one thing that attracted me to theater was the openness of its community I joined it as a very, very socially awkward twenty-year-old autist, to use a colloquialism. Well,
1: people might have thought you said artist, but you
0: did not say artist, did you? I did not. I said artist, uh, as in a fellow on the autism spectrum. Uh, back then, I might have referred to myself as an Aspie, referring to Asperger's syndrome, a term that I am very happy to leave in its grave. Mm which we'll get to those reasons later, but yeah. And it really helped me refine my social skills. I mean, it was learning empathy, not that I didn't have empathy before, but it's literally how to express it Uh, that I think really changed me into who I am right now, which is a, I would like to say is a much more rounded individual who I guess surprises people sometimes it, it's a semi-insult, I think, when uh, I let people know I'm on the spectrum. And they're like, really? You seem fine. Mm. And, and I'll let it slide because I don't think they were thinking. Yeah.
1: Well, you, you're you living the life. But that's part of why I'm so excited for our
0: guests tonight.
1: Mm-hmm. And I wonder, Tom, could you please introduce our guests on the Dr. Joe
0: show? Yeah. So he is the director of the Autism Spectrum Disorder Program at Pediatric Psychopharmacology and Medical Director of the Bressler Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. His clinical and research interest is in autism spectrum disorder, with particular focus on the often neglected comorbid conditions associated with these disorders. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Gagan Joshi. Yeah!
2: Hey, Thank Hello, you. Dr. Joshi. So wonderful thank to you. have you here. Thank you, Joe, for inviting me, and thank you, Tom, and thank you for sharing your story with us. And uh, I, I think, uh, you know, when I see individuals like you, uh, I, I do realize that somebody along the way, when you were growing up, did a good job and helped you out and let you grow to be you who you are today. Great to oh, see. Yeah, you.
0: That, parents, like it Absolutely. makes all the difference in the world. There we go. I agree.
1: So just full disclosure, Dr. Joshi and I also go way back. Um, we were both, uh, you did your fellowship there at MGH McLean several years ago,
0: yes, I did. right? Yeah. And
1: I, I think I had maybe one year ahead of you,
2: maybe. maybe A two couple of most... I think I did in 2002, so. Uh...
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's more years than I'd like to admit. Um <laughs> But uh, but here you are. First, let, let me just say, not only am I just thrilled to have you here, um, but but I really really enjoy the fact that you and, and Tom can maybe talk with each other. One as I'm going to say, Tom as the expert who's living this life, and you, Dr. Joshi, as as one of the world' great professionals who is an authority in so much about. Uh, autism spectrum and working with so many, many other people, so I look forward sometime maybe to just sort of stepping back and just listening to the two of you. But how did you get interested in this particular part of the world?
2: So I did not jump in i i I never had this idea that from the day I was born, I want to be an expert in autism spectrum, no. I always believe, and I, I give this example to patients too, that it's a journey to know who you are. And in <clears> the journey, you have your own strengths, you have your own weaknesses, and in a very naturalistic way, your strengths and weakness, you bump between the two and the direction you go in. And whatever you're good at, that path opens up for you. So I initially started working in pediatric bipolar disorder with Janet. And what I realized, Janet Wozniak, folks, Janet, Wozniak, Janet guest Wozniak, here, sorry, but... But I should have mentioned, Dr. Yep. Janet Wozniak. And what I realized that as I was working with this pediatric population with bipolar disorder, there was this set of kids who were more impaired than the typical bipolar disorder kids. And anyone who knows anything about pediatric bipolar disorder, these are the sickest kids we have in our clinic. Even mm. among them, there was this set of kids who were Definitely had the bipolar presentation, but also were also seemed like their social skills in my interviews and how they were conducting themselves, and what sensory reactions they were having uh, were little different. And they were the ones we 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 always noticed were even though they made like one tenth of the clinic, they used the maximum resources. They were often coming back to see us again. They were very impaired population. Now. I did a study in the beginning and now I look back and I, what I found in pediatric bipolar disorder is I was looking at overlap between OCD. Now, I, I, I say these disorders because this is how sometimes you have to follow the dictum, but the, I, I, I don't see disorders. I usually see symptoms. So uh, I saw these repetitive symptoms with bipolar disorder and I was curious to know what is the overlap. And we found roughly 20%, the very same percent of the kids who were struggling the most had these repetitive behaviors. Hmm. Not only that, they had a typical kind of OCD behavior, which is very resistant to treatment with OCD medication. That's (laughs) the hoarding and saving kind.
1: And OCD for, for is obsessive-compulsive. Is that right? Oh,
2: yes. yes, sorry. Okay. You know, I, I talked to you, Joe, and it seemed like two doctors talking, and I forget. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is. It. It but thank you. It for is that. two
1: doctors talking, but we both yeah. translate for the rest of the world. That's great.
2: So so that particular kind of holding and saving kind of OCD, which is resistant to treatment with any OCD medication, I slowly hmm. recognized that this population had repetitive behaviors, had mood dysregulation or bipolar disorder, and had this social-emotional immaturity. And hmm. that was my start. After I published that paper, I started looking a little bit deeper into it. And because Joe Biederman, uh, the chief of uh, pediatric psychopharmacology at MGH, my, my mentor, he had collected humongous data on structured interview in the clinic. He We then looked into the clinic data and we found that, oh my God, There is a more than expected proportion of kids who come to the clinic have this autism spectrum disorder. They have those hoarding and repetitive behaviors. And guess what? They had this mood dysregulation, which perfectly met the profile for mixed-state mania at that time. But what I learned over time that the mood dysregulation had a very unique quality. It was like they had poor executive control. So Joe, mm-hmm. let me tell you a story. And this story I've said, told so many times, and I tell the families just to give a sense that we are all part of a continuum. There is no breach between us and the one you call as the one which are ordered and one disorders. It is a right. continuum. So here's the story I tell: Every baby who's born on the face of earth is autistic. Wow! To begin with. Wow. They they have no empathy right? They are not very good non-verbally. If you look at any culture in the world, whenever they look at the baby, what do they do? They exaggerate Mm. their non-verbals. Baby! And this is so ingrained in our genetics that every culture does this. The reason for doing that is babies cannot read intense non-verbals. And Tom, uh, I I don't know your case, but most of the folks I see like you, they can read intense non-verbals, but they cannot read the subtle ones right? So the babies only read intense, but not the subtle, right? Bab- babies are very rigid, very routine bound. They have no perspective taking. They have no introspective ability. All these are autistic traits. Hmm. So every baby, autistic or non-autistic, are born to begin with, with all autistic behaviors. And part of maturing is that you shed those autistic traits or mellow down on them like the leaves falling from trees in the season we are in fall. Mm. Now, interestingly, if you look at a single tree, the tree's colors, the leaves' colors are not the same. And that is a beautiful interaction of the biology of the leaf and what shade or sun or or the microenvironment they get, which side they're facing of the sun, that's how they change the color. That brings the diversity, right? You will not see, very rarely you'll see a tree without a leaf. So is very rarely you'll see an individual grown up without any autistic trait, very rare. So this is one thing that we all are part of that autistic continuum, and some have it more, some have it less. Interestingly, what we also found that the male gender carries more autistic traits than the female gender. Females are socially more, more, more competent and in evolution, we see females are herd gatherers keeping together and men were there with spearheads and destroyers. So they have each their role. But when we use these scale, the screeners in the general population, females rate lower than males mm-hmm. by a significant margin. So there is a gender difference here, too. Now, as these kids grow, and I'm now talking about because one thing I didn't mention in my, my bio is that I work predominantly with high functioning, which used to call high functioning, I am still figuring out what is the appropriate term to use. I would say intellectually intact autism. Because I think since the the DSM-IV got rid of Asperger's, everybody struggled what to call the individuals who have intellectual uh, capacities intact, but uh, social emotional capacities are impaired. So uh, this is the population I deal with. So when these kids are growing, the two kids, both one may have autism, one may not have autism, by by roughly around three or four years of age, you cannot tell which is autistic. If I may ask you, if you're good in math, can you tell which baby is a math genius? No, you'll only tell when they'll do the math, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: One One of the things we are trying to do is to diagnose this early. So what happens as these kids start growing and the typical kids start socially changing, in the behaviors, and one of the behavioral changes which takes place is that they become, in the conversation rather than verbal, they become more non-verbal. And you know that typical teenagers, they hardly say anything. They just make faces or subtle hints, and they roll their eyes, and that is supposed to send the message. And oftentimes these are negative, negative non-verbal communications. Now, our kid with autism who doesn't have a great capacity of reading the non-verbals, now they are totally blindsided and socially become, they become socially blind and understanding what's happening in their world.
1: So, so let, me, let me pause
0: for a moment there. Tom, was that your experience uh, as a teenager?
2: Oh, 100%. Just not being able to, to read the room, I would say. And, and, and what it also does, if you look at the nursery school teachers and if you look at the high school teacher, And if I show you two teachers, one is very flexible, one is very rigid. Guess who's a nursery school teacher and who's a high school teacher? Mm -hmm. So the rigidities these individuals have is very well couched and taken care of when they are in uh, younger grades. But as they get older, they are are expected to be flexible. And Mm -hmm. that's when their rigidity starts clashing against the system's rigidity. And and believe me, all these traits uh, are there. Are two sides of the same coin. As they do disservice to them, the same rigidity can be their determination to to succeed in life. So that that is always there. So we should not stifle it completely. But what I'm saying is that as they reach into that, you know, preteen age years, uh, for example, Tom was diagnosed. Uh, you mentioned that before the show between age and eight and nine years of age. Do you just know? about, just about, and that is the age when the intellectually intact autism often comes to light.
1: And why is that, Dr. Joshi? Why then?
2: So by that time, the social impairments, the social impairments starts ratcheting up. They start separating from their typical uh, friends. Their friends are changing. I tell you three virtues I tell kids to have. One is have a good repertoire of, of curse words but also know when to use them, the content. Because yeah. I can tell you what emotion a curse word will convey as a packet of emotion, no lengthy statement will do. I and mean, we all know it, that there is a curse word which comes out and we feel relieved. Second thing I t- tell them is, is, is that you need to uh, you need to learn how to be lazy. Hmm. Because we always teach in our culture how to be productive, but we never teach how to relax.
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm. Right? Third thing I tell them, you need to learn how to lie. To lie? Yes. Lying is very important uh, skill to learn. And a lie is a lie if it's caught. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because they are very, very poor liars. First, they don't lie. And when they lie, it's such a... It's a laughable lie oftentimes. So I, t- I often tell them, hey, look, you're not a good liar. Just stop doing it. It's really not helping you. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, Fascinating. In, in a very different way, I teach them that these, these skill sets, which you inherently don't have, and which may be labeled as negative, you need to have them because they can be used positively too. For example, a white lie. I can tell you mm-hmm. my friend Tom is so honest that he probably has been honest all the time. How do I look? You look okay, all, all right. Or how do you feel, Tom? And he says, I'm not feeling good today. <laughs> so when they are mm-hmm. younger, they tend to do that. So I, I these three skills, I, I, I sort of, and I start with them just to make fun of this whole concept of mm-hmm. mm-hmm. what it is. It, it really helps me uh, to break in, break in with my patients. Uh, so as these kids then, so the typical kids are also changing. They start sort of they, they start dating and oftentimes our spectrum kids are a little delayed sexual in their sexual development or or they are they don't know what you call that the dating process. They, they are very blunt in telling someone if they' are attracted to them without a knowledge. And as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking of a kid I'm treating right now. Uh, he it it never crossed his mind that he needs to just make sure that the other person is iota a little bit interested in them before they said they are interested. <clears throat> so it, 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 so they are they they don't like foreplay. <laughs> they are, <laughs> they would dive into what they think is this is what I need to do. So mm-hmm. the interests are changing in those kids. They are leaving behind their barnies and barbies and uh, other things and 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 heading into the next phase and. We know this population doesn't like change, and they are not into all these abstract things like fashion or, or, you know, how to be you know socially manipulative. And teenage years are more about social skills than intellectual powers, and, and <clears throat> they start feeling alienated. More often than not, these kids, uh, the data clearly shows that the ones who have emotional behavioral difficulties, they are diagnosed uh, very late. And they often present to us, the psychiatrists, with often unrecognized autism coming with emotional dysregulation, anxiety, and ADHD. So when we get them, uh, the situation is that in that situation, the emotional difficulties mask autism completely. And and as you treat the emotional difficulties or behavioral difficulties, you may see more of the social and emotional processing impairments uh, in this population
0: um tom you you unmuted you got something to add to this well i would just say it was just going to comment it's like the purest expression of the
2: term late bloomer Mm
0: -hmm. when you say what
2: you got it and then tom i i have a question for you tell me you know you are a smart guy intellectually you are always thinking why this social dance is mm -hmm. not going right and and you probably had a lot of intellectual success uh, before you hit your uh, teenage years. Did you? Did you sort of when you were going through this uh, journey? Did you sort of start changing yourself, adapting, or start working on the pieces in you to say, "Hey, I can't do this. I got to make some changes."
0: Yes, and it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of wild goose chases. I used to th- like. I remember when I was like eighth grade, I was like, oh, I don't have a studded belt. All the kids are wearing studded belts. They're all fashionable. So I thought that was going to make a big difference. Nope. Throughout high school, I uh, was like trying to pretend to like the same music or dress the same way with wearing like skate shoes. Not really me. I still kind of had the grunge look about me, but that was my choice. Yeah, I feel like, like I mentioned late bloomers. I feel like I'm just getting started. Like I just turned 19, 20 that's where I am socially, at least not that I'm hanging around with 18, 19 year olds.
2: Did you lose friends as, as, as you, as you grew and became a teenager, the friends you had before in your uh, school age years? Well,
0: yes. Uh, I would say, cause I moved around schools a lot. Uh, not a lot, but I switched to a charter school from eight through 12. So, those kids kind of just had to be my friends because it was a class of around 30. I'll, I'll message back and forth between some of them because some of them I think liked me enough uh, and they're, they're very glad to see I'm doing well. Uh, but it was I was definitely a bit of a nuisance most of the time. It wasn't until I was in the, the, the theater scene that I was with kids who were just as weird as me. So why did you like theater? I mean, the first hook was just the attention. And just the, the ability to be theatrical as very expressive. And it, it let me show off my memory. I was always the first one off book. But then it became something more. It became about having these tight-knit groups form, doing show after show together, having our own inside jokes and stories. And, I, you know, practically speaking, I love working with my hands. Like, I love actually seeing I did something when I'm doing uh, working in the scene shop or just even helping sweep the floor. Just I love seeing that actual physical tangible process.
2: Yeah, yeah th-
0: th- there's so many reasons. So and it's wonderful. And, and it's
1: one of those, it's one of those tangible processes and one of those things that we can actually hold on to.
2: So the other thing I want to say and this is one of the things I've realized because I come from a different culture, right? I come from India. It is a totally different culture. And I was, I was trying to understand these autistic traits. They are very genetically framed, right? What If you try to see, and, and no disrespect to any culture, every culture has its own strength. There are these major genetic pools in the world, the, the Asian pool, the British pool, the Irish pool, the French, the Italians, right, the Germans, right? There was a South Korean study done they used the most astringent criteria for diagnosing autism. They found the highest rate of autism in the world, in South Korea. Roughly 2.5%. Yet, you know what the interesting piece was? That none of those people they found having autism were impaired in their functioning. So they were in absolute terms, they were loaded with traits. But they were they never had any psychiatric uh, needs. they never had any uh, kind of developmental disorders looking into their social, uh, emotional behaviors. And here's the reason. I believe that every genetic pool based on the strengths and weaknesses creates their own culture. Mm. As much as they promote what the genetic pool is strong at, if suppose, let me just say, I can tell you about my uh, country that, They are very strong in the educational piece, so they promote, highlight, and celebrate educational successes. If if the the, uh, genetic pool is weak in social skills, then they couch the social skills. For example, the British. If you look at the upper-class British, they don't have any, they're very astute. They don't show any expressions and emotions. They're more verbal than non-verbal. One can say, look how controlled emotionally they are. But if that person has to, if the situation demands to express emotion, they probably find themselves really stifled to express emotions the way Italians do. What they do is, because they are socially not spontaneous, they have created all kinds of norms in the culture. Put your spoon here, shake hands three times. Cannot go four, cannot go two, because there is no spontaneity there. You bow in, in front of queen twice. So they have algorithmized things in the culture because genetically it could be, and it's my guess. If you take the British person and throw them in an Italian society, Italians are, you know, very warm, fuzzy, sensory-seeking, less boundaries, very emotionally expressive. So Italian by genetic cannot be a British. A British by genetic can never be an Italian to need be. So each mm-hmm. genetic pool has its own autistic trait loading. In their own pool, it may not be impairing at all because everything, what the flip side of the trait is, which is success, if the culture celebrates that, then it becomes no impairment. It is not an impairment then. Are you Are you with me on this one?
1: Very interesting. But so in our culture then, what is the percentage of autism is it the same
2: universally so here's the thing if you look we have to we have to go dig deeper into this the rates of autism are 1 in 59 right now and it's been rising but the rising rise is contributed by the intellectually intact functional autism i would say those people who are intellectually functioning but socially, emotionally stifled. Mm. The rates of the classic autism, or, you know, the the, the autism, what we say, the Big Bang Theory autism, Mm -hmm. those rates are on the rise. But the Rain Man autism is static. That hasn't shifted at all. Our culture, interestingly, is a melting pot. So the genetic pool of this culture is a combination of the genetic pool of all the cultures because it's such a great country. Everybody wants to, I have <laughs> come here because I, I, I adopted this country because I, I, I love this place. So yeah, right. it's it a heterogeneous country and, and uh, genetically, and the disorder itself is very heterogeneous.
1: So, so can we just
2: back up just for a moment?
1: We, we've been talking a lot about autism, but what is the definition
2: of it? How would you define autistic spectrum? So he, I was telling, I think it was at the break time I was talking about, uh, if the simplest way to define autism is that if your intellectual competence is sick. So if your social emotional competence is impaired. And it is significantly more impaired than your intellectual competence. That is autism. Because if both okay. are impaired, if intellectual competence and social emotional uh, both are equally impaired, then it's intellectual disability. Okay.
1: So we haven't even mentioned the term theory of mind. Is theory of mind still a fundamental component of autistic spectrum?
2: Theory of you... mind. Theory of mind is is definitely a component of autism, but it is not an essential component of autism. Okay. And if you think of theory of mind, it has many different pieces to it. For example, suppose Tom is in pain. He has a painful expression. And I am the one who cannot read emotions on the faces. Mm -hmm. I'm totally oblivious of it. One can say, I don't have empathy. Right? Right. Suppose Tom is in pain and I acknowledge the pain but i don't mirror the pain in me and feel it for him and i don't have the capacity to express non verbally the pain then mm-hmm. i am not reciprocated to him mm-hmm. suppose i know tom is in pain i feel for tom is in pain but i do not have the emotional language to resonate with tom all these three things can impede theory of mind okay so right. and then,
1: so and, and let me just for, for the listeners I'm, so theory of mind, it's, it's not like theory of quantum mechanics. It's not like theory of relativity. It's a clunky scientific term because we can't see someone's mind. So we have to theorize and guess. Is that fair, Dr. Joshi?
2: Simply put, so uh, I do neuroimaging research, and each neuroimaging scientist have their own definition of theory of mind. Simply put, can you put yourself in other person's shoes? Right. Simply. Right.
1: Right. And so, and so that, for me, is the second part of theory of mind. Because that's the part that I think you're talking about that develops in, in, a, in an infant and child around the age of three or four, the ability to appreciate somebody else's perspective. But I'm going to ask you, Tom, if you may not have understood other people's perspectives but did you have any thought or awareness of how you thought they felt about you?
0: Sometimes I'll deflect and just say that I loved how Dr. Joshi in all your examples, you did not say, maybe I recognize Tom's in pain, but I don't care because I don't mm-hmm. have empathy. Yeah. So,
2: yes. Yes. And, and this, this is the example I give people how to differentiate between antisocial personality disorder and autism, even though there could be an overlap. I have to admit that. So here's an example. Two people cross the Sahara and they're both thirsty. They reach the water. One person takes the water and drinks it and doesn't offer to the other. Now this person who's drinking it, if the person knows that the other person needs it but he's having it first without giving it to them, that is a skewed person, antisocial person but the one who is drinking if he's totally unaware that the other person also needs the water he's not selfish he is not even aware that the other person needs the water yeah. one of the things i i always say this this is a paradox with high functioning spectrum they are often very sensitive towards themselves to to any kind of and often get they have a biased nonverbal reading of negative cues and mm. they are they are Put in simple terms, they're thin-skinned. They they feel very hurt emotionally. And because they cannot take that perspective, they come across as very sort of cold and ruthless to others. And that only comes from complete unawareness of not knowing what the other person uh, is feeling at that moment.
1: Yeah. The way I I describe that is someone can be oblivious. It doesn't mean they're oppositional. Yeah. That they're just clueless. But that doesn't mean they don't care.
2: Yeah. I'm very curious to talk to Tom. Uh, you know, this is why, uh, Tom, in the end of, we, we we all do what we love to do. You're doing what you love to do, and I'm doing what I love to do, and this is what I love to do. So let me just say one thing about anxiety and spectrum. Anxiety disorders are highly, highly, highly under-recognized in intellectually intact autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, What you see is just a tip of an iceberg. And there are many reasons why they are, because they don't have the typical expressions to show it. And oftentimes, anxiety and aggression are the two sides of the same coin fused by the autonomic arousal. So what you see, the aggression, there's often underlying anxiety in them. And anxiety is actually, Joe, we all know, we are grown up now, that it is one of the emotions which it demands a lot of maturity for us to appreciate in ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's uh, true. It, when you're angry, you know it. When you're happy, you know it. You, when you're sad. But when you're anxious, others tell you and you get... You know. A little irritated to say, I'm not anxious. That's right.
1: And we're talking about
2: anxiety,
1: but also some of the new research that's coming up, which, uh, which you're involved in, Dr.
2: Joshi. Can you share a little bit about your current studies? So, you know, you, we, we have a clinic we run, uh, uh, which is across the lifespan for individuals with intellectually intact autism. And what we do is that we do their clinical profiling just to see what autism presents because we know know no two autism are the same. Uh, We interestingly do one thing. We do not only look at the autism features as a deficit. We also have the scales to look at if they are exceptional in that area. And there are splinter uh, excellence with autism. So we try to map out both the strengths and weaknesses in the individual. We, have, we do neuroimaging research to see the brain function in autism. And uh, recently, we did an NIH uh, study to study uh, memantine. It's a, it, it, it's, it's a glutamate modulating agent. It's a very safe medication used for Alzheimer's disease. And the way we came to this concept of, of studying uh, memantine for autism was that we, were, we conducted a spectroscopic study at McLean Hospital. It's our sister hospital. Uh, to look at the glutamate activity in an area of the brain which is, which is the sort of the center of social-emotional decision-making. And what it is that that region has a, a very rich input from the front of the brain, the thinking brain, and the emotional brain comes to that region, and the thinking and the emotional brain come together to have an output, right? Mm-hmm. And we found that the glutamate activity was threefold higher in teenagers with high-functioning or what you call intellectually intact autism. Interestingly, interestingly, not all of them had that. It was only 60% of the study population had that extremely high glutamate. So when we found
1: that... Hold on one sec. So so just for our listeners, so glutamate is a a brain chemical, basically.
2: Right? It's a major neurotransmitter in the brain. It is responsible for the brain development, for the neurons to develop, to proliferate. And, and in the developmental years, it plays a critical role. Too much of it or too less of it, both are harmful. So right. we did okay. a study with this medication called memantine, which is which suppresses glutamate. And we did a neuroimaging before giving them memantine. And twelve after giving them 12 weeks of memantine, we did neuroimaging again. Here is what we found. First thing we found that anybody who responded in their social behaviors, social behaviors like became more emotionally expressive, uh, desiring more time uh, with friends, uh, understanding other people in terms of listening to them and trying to incorporate their ideas, becoming more flexible in their, in, in their functioning and more accommodative and more of a team player. These are some of the symptoms. Anybody who had an s- improvement in that all of them had their glutamate levels come down. Fascinating. And that included the placebo. Even in the Rarement. placebo who improved, the glutamate came down. Anybody who did not improve, the glutamate stayed high. Moreover, all the people who responded in the medication arm, that means to mementine, were all those folks who had high glutamate. None of the normal glutamate folks responded to memantine. So we are gonna be doing a prospective study on this. So this subtype could be very helpful in identifying people beforehand to know whether they would respond to this treatment or not.
1: And there's, a, you said there was a biomarker? So, you so could we This actually... is a
2: biomarker of therapeutic response. So if I can get their glutamate tested first, I can say with more certainty whether they'll respond to memantine or not. If their glutamate is normal, I can say with more certainty they are not gonna to respond to memantine. So that is biomarker of response. Now, hmm. we all are talking and how Tom was diagnosed late. People are often diagnosed in the teenage or even as adults. We want them to be diagnosed early. We want to see that the population at risk, if you have a sibling with autism or a parent with autism, if we can test the glutamate levels at that time before the social impairments show, then we can screen them further and, and, and see if they are at risk or have other autistic features to say that we can uh, intervene there and give them therapeutic behavioral interventions as early as possible. So it could serve um, as a biomarker uh, for disease and for diagnosis.
1: And then for, for some sort of intervention early on.
2: Yes, because once he diagnosed, I'm sure with Tom, he can tell you that these social problems he didn't have when he was diagnosed. He had them way before that, the diagnosis mm. was way late.
1: You know, we're getting to the last few minutes of the show and we talk about the I am approach, you know, the idea that everybody's doing the best they can, whether you're on the spectrum or not, you're still doing the best you can responding to the four domains of your home domain, the social domain. We've been talking a lot about the social domain and responses to that, the biological domain of your brain and body and the I see how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because the four domains interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. You make a small change in any one of the domains, it can have a ripple effect through the others. So Dr. Joshi, what small change can you recommend to our listeners who may be challenged with autism or maybe a parent who's wondering about their kid? What small change can you recommend?
2: I always end my interviews with the families highlighting the strengths in the child who has come to me to share the deficits. And I always remind them, do not lose your focus from the strengths of this kid in the midst of the storm of deficits, Mm, because, because that is the anchor you need in this storm. And, and, And don't forget that we have to develop that area, which is the strength of the child. I feel very blessed and, and, if i could just help as many kids as possible who are in their teenage years struggling emotionally and socially and the only mojo they have in life is their intellectual you know development and if I could be just their guardrails to keep them on track and keep all the emotional and behavioral problems in check so that they can fo- go in a regular school or intellectually competent school and succeed later on. life, I, I tell families one thing. If you look at the lifespan of autism, the autism is worst and most severe in the teenage years. Mm-hmm. And there is a light after this. This is their most stormy times. I say babies from zero to six are angels. Six to eighteen are devils, and after that they are human beings. So just wait for the peers to become human beings, and and they will do great. And my job is to just walk with them through the storm and get them past that age, and and, and let them thrive as adults.
1: And I think you may have then just started to answer our second truth of the I am, because everybody is interested in what you think or feel about them, which affects their IC domain, and that affects their biological domain because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. This means you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. So Dr. Joshi, I think you've already started to tell us, but what kind of influence do you want to be?
2: I I think it's hard to answer the question what influence I want to be because I always never knew what I'm going to be. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's hard to even say what I want. I think the influence I want to be that people I am blessed to know and from whom I learn and do my research and, and learn more about them, that at some point, hopefully, when I and you, Joe, are, are old enough not to see well or hear well, mm-hmm. that they can just look back and just say, that guy helped when I needed him. Yeah
1: folks dr joshi thank you so much for being on the dr joe show we'll be back next week bye everybody